Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. Now we continue with Moby Dick or The Whale by Herman Melville. Chapter 61. Stubb Kills a Whale If to Starbuck the apparition of the squid was a thing of portents, to Queequeg it was quite a different object. When you see him quid, said the savage, honing his harpoon in the bow of his hoisted boat, then you quick see him parm whale. The next day was exceedingly still and sultry, and with nothing special to engage them, the Pequod's crew could hardly resist the spell of sleep induced by such a vacant sea. For this part of the Indian Ocean through which we then were voyaging is not what whalemen call a lively ground. That is, it affords fewer glimpses of porpoises, dolphins, flying fish, and other vivacious denizens of more stirring waters than those of the Rio de la Plata or the inshore ground off Peru. It was my turn to stand at the foremast head, and with my shoulders leaning against the slackened royal shrouds, to and fro I idly swayed in what seemed an enchanted air. No resolution could withstand it. In that dreamy mood losing all consciousness, at last my soul went out of my body. Though my body still continued to sway as a pendulum will, long after the power which first moved it is withdrawn. Ere forgetfulness altogether came over me, I had noticed that the seamen at the main and mizzen mastheads were already drowsy, so that at last all three of us lightly swung from the spars, and for every swing that we made there was a nod from below from the slumbering helmsman. The waves, too, nodded their indolent crests, and across the wide trance of the sea, east nodded to west, and the sun over all. Suddenly bubbles seemed bursting beneath my closed eyes. Like vices, my hands grasped the shrouds. Some invisible, gracious agency preserved me. With a shock, I came back to life, and lo, close under our lee, not forty fathoms off, a gigantic sperm whale lay rolling in the water like the capsized hull of a frigate, his broad, glossy back of an Ethiopian hue glistening in the sun's rays like a mirror, but lazily undulating in the trough of the sea, and ever and anon tranquilly spouting his vapory jet, the whale looked like a portly burger smoking his pipe of a warm afternoon. But that pipe, poor whale, was thy last. As if struck by some enchanter's wand, the sleepy ship and every sleeper in it all at once started into wakefulness and more than a score of voices from all parts of the vessel simultaneously with the three notes from aloft shouted forth the accustomed cry as the great fish slowly and regularly spouted the sparkling brine into the air. Clear away the boats! Luff! cried Ahab, and obeying his order, he dashed the helm down before the helmsman could handle the spokes. The sudden exclamations of the crew must have alarmed the whale, and ere the boats were down, majestically turning, he swam away to the leeward, 
but with such a steady tranquillity and making so few ripples as he swam that thinking after all he might not as yet be alarmed, Ahab gave orders that not an oar should be used and no man must speak but in whispers. So seated like Ontario Indians on the gunwales of the boats, we swiftly but silently paddled along, the calm not admitting of the noiseless sails being set. Presently, as we thus glided in chase, the monster perpendicularly flitted his tail forty feet into the air and then sank out of sight like a tower swallowed up. There goes flukes, was the cry, an announcement immediately followed by Stubbs producing his match and igniting his pipe, for now a respite was granted. After the full interval of his sounding had elapsed, the whale rose again, and being now in advance of the smoker's boat, and much nearer to it than to any of the others, Stubb counted upon the honor of the capture. It was obvious now that the whale had at length become aware of his pursuers. All silence of cautiousness was therefore no longer of use. Paddles were dropped, and oars came loudly into play. And still puffing at his pipe, Stubb cheered on his crew to the assault. Yes, a mighty change had come over the fish, all alive to his jeopardy. He was going head out, that part obliquely projecting from the mad yeast which he brewed. It will be seen in some other place of what a very light substance the entire interior of the sperm whale's enormous head consists, though apparently the most massive. It is by far the most buoyant part about him so that with ease he elevates it in the air, and invariably does so when going at his utmost speed. Besides, such is the breadth of the upper part of the front of his head, and such the tapering cut-water formation of the lower part, that by obliquely elevating his head, he thereby may be said to transform himself from a bluff-bowed sluggish galliot into a sharp-pointed New York pilot-boat. Start her, start her, my men. Don't hurry yourselves. Take plenty of time, but start her. Start her like thunderclaps. That's all, cried Stubb, spluttering out the smoke as he spoke. Start her now. Give him the long and strong stroke, Tashtego. Start her, Tash, my boy. Start her, all, but keep cool, keep cool. Cucumbers is the word. Easy, easy. Only start her like grim death and grinning devils, and raise the buried dead perpendicular out of their graves. That's all, boys. Start her. Woo-hoo! Wah-hee! screamed the gay header in reply, raising some old war hoop to the skies, as every oarsman in the strained boat involuntarily bounced forward with the one tremendous leading stroke which the eager Indian gave but his wild screams were answered by others quite as wild. Kee-hee! Kee-hee! yelled Daegu, straining forwards and backwards on his seat like a pacing tiger in his cage. Ka-la! Koo-loo! howled Queequeg, as if smacking his lips over a mouthful of grenadier's steak. And thus with oars and yells, the keels cut the sea. Meanwhile, Stubb, Retaining his place in the van, 
still encouraged his men to the onset, all the while puffing the smoke from his mouth. Like desperados they tugged and they strained, till the welcome cry was heard, Stand up, Tashtego! Give it to him! The harpoon was hurled. Stern all! The oarsmen backed water. The same moment something went hot and hissing along every one of their wrists. It was the magical line. An instant before, Stubb had swiftly caught two additional turns with it round the loggerhead, whence, by reason of its increased rapid circlings, a hempen blue smoke now jetted up and mingled with the steady fumes from his pipe. As the line passed round and round the loggerhead, so also, just before reaching at that point, it blisteringly passed through and through both of Stubb's hands, from which the handcloths, or squares of quilted canvas sometimes worn at these times, had accidentally dropped. It was like holding an enemy's sharp two-edged sword by the blade, and that enemy all the time striving to wrest it out of your clutch. What the line! What the line! cried Stubb to the tub oarsman, him seated by the tub, who, snatching off his hat, dashed the seawater into it. More turns were taken, so that the line began holding its place. The boat now flew through the boiling water like a shark all fins. Stubb and Tashtego here changed places, stem for stern, a staggering business truly in that rocking commotion. Partly to show the indispensableness of this act, it may be here stated that in the old Dutch fishery, a mop was used to dash the running line with water. In many other ships, a wooden piggin or baler is set apart for that purpose. Your hat, however, is the most convenient. From the vibrating line extending the entire length of the upper part of the boat, and from its now being more tight than a harp string, you would have thought the craft had two keels, one cleaving the water, the other the air. As the boat churned on through both opposing elements at once, a continual cascade played at the bows, a ceaseless whirling eddy in her wake, and at the slightest motion from him, even but of a finger, the vibrating, cracking craft canted over her spasmodic gunwale into the sea. Thus they rushed, each man with might and main clinging to his seat to prevent being tossed to the foam, and the tall form of Tashtego at the steering oar crouching almost double in order to bring down his center of gravity. Whole Atlantics and Pacific seemed past as they shot on their way, till at length the whale somewhat slackened in his flight. Haul in! Haul in! cried Stubb to the bowsman. And, facing round towards the whale, all hands began pulling the boat up to him, while yet the boat was being towed on. Soon raging up by his flank, Stubb, firmly planting his knee in the clumsy cleat, darted dart after dart into the flying fish. At the word of command, the boat alternately sterning out of the way of the whale's horrible wallow and then ranging up for another fling. The red tide now poured from all sides of the monster-like brooks down a hill. His tormented body rolled not in brine but in blood, which bubbled and seethed for furlongs behind in their wake. The slanting sun playing upon this crimson pond in the sea sent back its reflection into every face, 
so that they all glowed to each other like red men, and all the while jet after jet of white smoke was agonizingly shot from the spiracle of the whale, and vehement puff after puff from the mouth of the excited headsman, as at every dart hauling in upon his crooked lance by the line attached to it, Stubbs straightened it again and again by a few rapid blows against the gunwale, then again and again sent it into the whale. Pull up, pull up, he now cried to the bowsman as the waning whale relaxed in his wrath. Pull up, close to, and the boat ranged along the fish's flank. When reaching far over the bow, Stubbs slowly churned his long, sharp lance into the fish and kept it there, carefully churning and churning, as if cautiously seeking to feel after some gold watch that the whale might have swallowed, and which he was fearful of breaking ere he could hook it out. But that gold watch he sought was the innermost life of the fish, and now it is struck, for starting from his trance into that unspeakable thing called his flurry, the monster horribly wallowed in his blood, overwrapped himself in impenetrable, mad, boiling spray, so that the imperiled craft, instantly dropping astern, had much ado blindly to struggle out from that frenzied twilight into the clear air of the day. And now abating in his flurry, the whale once more rolled out into view, surging from side to side, spasmodically dilating and contracting his spout hole with sharp, cracking, agonized respirations. At last, gush after gush of clotted red gore, as if it had been the purple lees of red wine, shot into the frighted air, and falling back again, ran dripping down his motionless flanks into the sea. His heart had burst. "'He's dead, Mr. Stubb,' said Daegu. "'Yes, both pipes smoked out.' and withdrawing his own from his mouth, Stubbs scattered the dead ashes over the water, and, for a moment, stood thoughtfully eyeing the vast corpse he had made. Chapter 62 The Dart A word concerning an incident in the last chapter. According to the invariable usage of the fishery, the whale boat pushes off from the ship with the headsman or whale killer as temporary steersman, and the harpooner or whale fastener pulling the foremost oar, the one known as the harpooner oar. Now it needs a strong, nervous arm to strike the first iron into the fish, for often, in what is called a long dart, the heavy implement has to be flung to the distance of twenty or thirty feet. But however prolonged and exhausting the chase, the harpooner is expected to pull his oar meanwhile to the uttermost. Indeed, he is expected to set an example of superhuman activity to the rest, not only by incredible rowing, but by repeated loud and intrepid exclamations. And what it is to keep shouting at the top of one's compass while all the other muscles are strained and half-started, what that is, none know but those who have tried it. For one, I cannot bawl very heartily and work very recklessly at one and the same time. In this straining, bawling state, then, with his back to the fish, all at once the exhausted harpooner hears the exciting cry, Stand up! 
and give it to him. He now has to drop and secure his oar, turn round on his center halfway, seize his harpoon from the crotch, and with what little strength may remain, he essays to pitch it somehow into the whale. No wonder, taking the whole fleet of whalemen in a body, that out of fifty fair chances for a dart, not five are successful. No wonder that so many hapless harpooners are madly cursed and dissuaded. No wonder that some of them actually burst their blood vessels in the boat. No wonder that some sperm whalemen are absent four years with four barrels. No wonder that to many ship owners, whaling is but a losing concern, for it is the harpooner that makes the voyage, and if you take the breath out of his body, how can you expect to find it there when most wanted? Again, if the dart be successful, then at the second critical instant, that is, when the whale starts to run, the boatheader and harpooner likewise start to running fore and aft, to the imminent jeopardy of themselves and everyone else. It is then they change places, and the headsman, the chief officer of the little craft, takes his proper station in the bows of the boat. Now, I care not who maintains the contrary, but all this is both foolish and unnecessary. The headsman should stay in the bows from first to last. He should both dart the harpoon and the lance, and no rowing whatever should be expected of him, except under circumstances obvious to any fisherman. I know that this would sometimes involve a slight loss of speed in the chase, but long experience in various whalemen of more than one nation has convinced me that in the vast majority of failures in the fishery, it has not by any means been so much the speed of the whale as before the described exhaustion of the harpooner that has caused them. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. Chapter 63. The Crotch Out of the trunk the branches grow, out of them the twigs. So, in productive subjects, grow the chapters. The crotch alluded to on a previous page deserves independent mention. It is a notched stick of a peculiar form, some two feet in length, which is perpendicularly inserted into the starboard gunwale near the bow. For the purpose of furnishing a rest for the wooden extremity of the harpoon, whose other naked barbed end slopingly projects from the bow. Thereby, the weapon is instantly at hand to its hurler, who snatches it up as readily from its rest as a backwoodsman swings his rifle from the wall. It is customary to have two harpoons reposing in the crotch, respectively called the first and second irons. But these two harpoons, each by its own cord, are both connected with the line, the object being this, to dart them both, if possible, one instantly after the other into the same whale, so that if, in the coming drag, one should draw out, the other may still retain a hold. It is a doubling of the chances. But it very often happens that owing to the instantaneous, violent, convulsive running of the whale upon receiving the first iron, it becomes impossible for the harpooner, 
however lightning-like in his movements, to pitch the second iron into him. Nevertheless, as the second iron is already connected with the line, and the line is running, hence that weapon must, at all events, be anticipatingly tossed out of the boat, somehow and somewhere. Else the most terrible jeopardy would involve all hands. Tumbled into the water, it accordingly is in such cases, the spare coils of box-lined, mentioned in a preceding chapter, making this feat, in most instances, prudently practicable. But this critical act is not always unattended with the saddest and most fatal casualties. Furthermore, you must know that when the second iron is thrown overboard, it thenceforth becomes a dangling, sharp-edged terror, skittishly curvetting about the boat and whale, entangling the lines or cutting them, and making a prodigious sensation in all directions. Nor in general is it possible to secure it again until the whale is fairly captured and a corpse. Consider now how it must be in the case of four boats all engaging one unusually strong, active, and knowing whale. When owing to these qualities in him, as well as to the thousand concurring accidents of such an audacious enterprise, eight or ten loose second irons may be simultaneously dangling about him. For, of course, each boat is supplied with several harpoons to bend on to the line should the first one be ineffectually darted without recovery. All these particulars are faithfully narrated here as they will not fail to elucidate several most important however intricate passages in scenes hereafter to be painted. Chapter 64, Stubbs' Supper Stubbs' whale had been killed some distance from the ship. It was a calm, so, forming a tandem of three boats, we commenced the slow business of towing the trophy to the Pequod. And now as we eighteen men with our thirty-six arms and one hundred and eighty thumbs and fingers slowly toiled hour after hour upon that inert, sluggish corpse in the sea, and it seemed hardly to budge at all, except at long intervals. Good evidence was hereby furnished of the enormousness of the mass we moved, for, upon the great canal of Hang Ho, or whatever they call it in China, Four or five laborers in the footpath will draw a bulky freighted junk at the rate of a mile an hour, but this grand argosy we towed heavily forged along, as if laden with pig lead in the bulk. Darkness came on, but three lights up and down in the Pequod's main rigging dimly guided our way, till drawing nearer as we saw Ahab dropping one of several more lanterns over the bulwarks. Vacantly eyeing the heaving whale for a moment, he issued the usual orders for securing it for the night, and then handing his lantern to a seaman, went his way into the cabin, and did not come forward again until morning. Though, in overseeing the pursuit of this whale, Captain Ahab had evinced his customary activity, to call it so, yet now that the creature was dead, some vague disaffection, or impatience, or despair seemed working in him. 
as if the sight of that dead body reminded him of that Moby Dick was yet to be slain. And though a thousand other whales were brought to his ship, all that would not one jot advance his grand monomaniac object. Very soon you would have thought from the sound on the Pequod's decks that all hands were preparing to cast anchor in the deep, for heavy chains are being dragged along the deck and thrust rattling out of the portals, but by those clanking links, the vast corpse itself, not the ship, is to be moored. Tied by the head to the stern, and by the tail to the bows, the whale now lies with its black hull close to the vessels, and seen through the darkness of the night, which obscured the spars and rigging loft, the two, ship and whale, seemed yoked together like colossal bullocks, whereof one reclines while the other remains standing. A little item may as well be related here. The strongest and most reliable hold which the ship has upon the whale when moored alongside is by the flukes or tail. And as from its greater density, that part is relatively heavier than any other, excepting the side fins. Its flexibility even in death causes it to sink low beneath the surface, so that with the hand you cannot get at it from the boat, in order to put the chain round it. But this difficulty is ingeniously overcome. A small, strong line is prepared with a wooden float at its outer end, and a weight in its middle, while the other end is secured to the ship. So that now, having girdled the made whale, the chain is readily made to follow suit and being slipped along the body, is at last locked fast round the smallest part of the tail, at the point of junction with its broad flukes or lobes. If moody Ahab was now all quiescence, at least so far as could be known on deck, Stubb, his second mate, flushed with conquest, betrayed an unusual but still good-natured excitement. Such an unwanted bustle was he in that the staid Starbuck, his official superior, quietly resigned to him for the time the sole management of affairs. One small helping cause of all this liveliness in Stubb was soon made strangely manifest. Stubb was a high liver. He was somewhat intemperately fond of the whale as a flavorish thing to his palate. A steak, a steak, ere I sleep, you, Daegu, Overboard you go, and cut me one from his small. Here be it known, that though these wild fishermen do not, as a general thing, and according to the great military maxim, make the enemy defray the current expenses of the war, at least before realizing the proceeds of the voyage, yet now and then you find some of these Nantucketers who have a genuine relish for that particular part of the sperm whale designated by Stubb comprising the tapering extremity of the body. About midnight, that steak was cut and cooked, and lighted by two lanterns of sperm oil, Stubbs stoutly stood up to his spermaceti supper at the capstan head as if that capstan were a sideboard. Nor was Stubb the only banqueter on the whale's flesh that night. Mingling their mumblings with his own mastications, Thousands on thousands of sharks, swarming round the dead leviathan, smackingly feasted on its fatness. 
The few sleepers below in their bunks were often startled by the sharp slapping of their tails against the hull within a few inches of the sleepers' hearts. Peering over the side, you could just see them, as before you heard them, wallowing in the sullen black waters and turning over on their backs as they scooped out huge globular pieces of the whale of the bigness of a human head. This particular feat of the shark seems all but miraculous. How, at such an apparently unassailable surface, they contrive to gouge out such symmetrical mouthfuls remains a part of the universal problem of all things. The mark they thus leave on the whale may best be likened to the hollow made by a carpenter in countersinking for a screw. Though amid all the smoking horror and diabolism of a sea fight, sharks will be seen longingly gazing up to the ship's decks like hungry dogs round a table where red meat is being carved, ready to bolt down every killed man that is tossed to them. And though, while the valiant butchers over the deck table are thus cannibally carving each other's live meat with carving knives all gilded and tasseled, the sharks also, with their jewel-hilted mouths, are quarrelsomely carving away under the table at the dead meat. And though... Were you to turn the whole affair upside down, it would still be pretty much the same thing. That is to say, a shocking, sharkish business enough for all parties. Note to the listener. At this point in the book, Melville creates a disparaging scene in which Stubb treats the black cook as a slave. Melville uses a horrific accent for the cook, and I found it too much for me to read. It felt very much like the audio equivalent of wearing blackface, so I did not include it in this recording. Chapter 65. The Whale as a Dish That mortal man should feed upon the creature that feeds his lamp, and, like Stubb, eat him by his own light, as you may say, This seems so outlandish a thing that one must needs go a little into the history and philosophy of it. It is upon record that three centuries ago the tongue of the right whale was esteemed a great delicacy in France and commanded large prices there. Also, that in Henry VIII's time, a certain cook of the court obtained a handsome reward for inventing an admirable sauce to be eaten with barbecued porpoises, which, you remember, are a species of whale. Porpoises, indeed, are to this day considered fine eating. The meat is made into balls about the sides of billiard balls, and being well-seasoned and spiced might be taken for turtle balls or veal balls. The old monks of Dunfermline were very fond of them. They had a great porpoise grant from the crown. The fact is that among his hunters, at least, the whale would by all hands be considered a noble dish, were there not so much of him. But when you come to sit down before a meat pie nearly 100 feet long, it takes away your appetite. Only the most unprejudiced of men like Stubb nowadays partake of cooked whales. But the Eskimo are not so fastidious. We all know how they live upon whales and have rare old vintages of prime old train oil. 
Zogranda, one of their most famous doctors, recommends strips of blubber for infants as being exceedingly juicy and nourishing. And this reminds me that certain Englishmen, who long ago were accidentally left in Greenland by a whaling vessel, that these men actually lived for several months on the moldy scrapes of whales which had been left ashore after drying out the blubber. Among the Dutch whalemen, these scraps are called fritters, which, indeed, they greatly resemble, being brown and crisp, and smelling something like old Amsterdam housewives' doughnuts or cooks when fresh. They have such an eatable look that the most self-denying stranger can hardly keep his hands off. But what further depreciates the whale as a civilized dish is his exceeding richness. He is the great prize ox of the sea, too fat to be delicately good. Look at his hump, which would be as fine eating as the buffalo's, which is esteemed a rare dish, were it not such a solid pyramid of fat. But the spermaceti itself, how bland and creamy that is, like the transparent, half-jellied, white meat of a coconut in the third month of its growth, yet far too rich to supply a substitute for butter. Nevertheless, many whalemen have a method of absorbing it into some other substance, and then partaking of it. In the long, dry watches of the night, it is a common thing for the seamen to dip their ship biscuit into the huge oil pots and let them fry there a while. Many a good supper have I thus made. In the case of a small sperm whale, the brains are accounted a fine dish. The casket of the skull is broken into with an axe, and the two plump whitish lobes being withdrawn, precisely resembling two large puddings, they are then mixed with flour and cooked into a most delectable mess, in favor somewhat resembling calves' heads, which is quite a dish among some epicures. And everyone knows that some young bucks among the epicures, by continually dining upon calves' brains, and by and by get to have a little brains of their own, so as to be able to tell all calves' heads from their own heads, which, indeed, requires uncommon discrimination. And that is the reason why a young buck with an intelligent-looking calf's head before him is somehow one of the saddest sights you can see. The head looks a sort of reproachfully at him, with an et tu brute expression. It is not, perhaps, entirely because the whale is so excessively unctuous that landsmen seem to regard the eating of him with abhorrence. That appears to result, in some way, from the consideration before mentioned, i.e., that a man should eat a newly murdered thing of the sea and eat it too by its own light. But no doubt the first man that ever murdered an ox was regarded as a murderer. Perhaps he was hung. And if he had been put on his trial by oxen, he certainly would have been. And he certainly deserved it if any murderer does. Go to the meat market of a Saturday night and see the crowds of live bipeds staring up at the long rows of dead quadrupeds. Does not that sight take a tooth out of the cannibal's jaw? Cannibals? Who is not a cannibal? I tell you it will be more tolerable for the Fiji that salted down a lean missionary in his cellar against a coming famine, 
It will be more tolerable for that provident Fiji, I say, in the day of judgment, than for thee, civilized and enlightened Gorman, who nailest geese to the ground and feastest on their bloated livers in thy pete de foie gras. But Stubb, he eats the whale by its own light, does he? And that is adding insult to your injury, is it? Look at your knife handle there, my civilized and enlightened gorman dining off that roast beef. What is that handle made of? What but the bones of the brother of the very ox you are eating? And what do you pick your teeth with after devouring that fat goose? With a feather of the same fowl. And with what quill did the secretary of the Society for the Suppression of Cruelty to Ganders formally indict his circulars? It is only within the last month or two that that society passed a resolution to patronize nothing but steel pens. Chapter 66. The Shark Massacre. When in the southern fishery, a captured sperm whale, after long and weary toil, is brought alongside late at night, it is not, as a general thing at least, customary to proceed at once to the business of cutting him in. For that business is an exceedingly laborious one, is not very soon completed, and requires all hands to set about it. Therefore, the common usage is to take in all sail, lash the helm a lee, and then send everyone below to his hammock till daylight, with the reservation that, until that time, anchor watches shall be kept, that is, two and two for an hour. Each couple, the crew in rotation, shall mount the deck to see that all goes well. But sometimes, especially upon the line in the Pacific, this plan will not answer at all. Because such an incalculable host of sharks gather round the moored carcass that were he left so for six hours, say, on a stretch, little more than the skeleton would be visible by morning. In most other parts of the ocean, however, where these fish do not so largely abound, their wondrous voracity can be at times considerably diminished, by vigorously stirring them up with sharp whaling spades, a procedure notwithstanding, which in some instances only seems to tickle them into still greater activity. But it was not thus in the present case with the Pequod sharks, though, to be sure, any man unaccustomed to such sights, to have looked over her side that night, would have almost thought the whole round sea was one huge cheese and those sharks the maggots in it. Nevertheless, upon Stubbs setting the anchor watch after his supper was concluded, and when, accordingly, Queequeg and a forecastle seaman came on deck, no small excitement was created among the sharks, for immediately suspending the cutting stages over the side and lowering three lanterns so that they cast long gleams of light over the turbid sea, these two mariners, darting their long whaling spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks by striking the keen steel deep into their skulls, seemingly their only vital part. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling hosts, the marksmen could not always hit their mark and this brought about new revelations of the incredible ferocity of the foe. 
they viciously snapped, not only at each other's disembowelments, but like flexible bows, bent round and bit their own, till those entrails seemed swallowed over and over again by the same mouth, to be oppositely voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. A sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones after what might be called the individual life had departed. Killed and hoisted on deck for the sake of his skin, one of these sharks almost took poor Queequeg's hand off when he tried to shut down the dead lid of his murderous jaw. The whaling spade used for cutting in is made of the very best steel, is about the bigness of a man's spread hand, and in general shape corresponds to the garden implement after which it is named. Only its sides are perfectly flat, and its upper end considerably narrower than the lower. This weapon is always kept as sharp as possible, and when being used is occasionally honed, just like a razor. In its socket, a stiff pole from 20 to 30 feet long is inserted for a handle. Queequeg no care what God make him shark, said the savage, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down. Whether Fiji God or Nantucket God, but de God what made shark must be one damn engine. Chapter 67 Cutting in. It was a Saturday night, and such a Sabbath as followed. Ex officio professors of Sabbath breaking are all whalemen. The ivory Pequod was turned into what seemed a shamble. Every sailor a butcher. You would have thought we were offering up 10,000 red oxen to the sea gods. In the first place, the enormous cutting tackles among other ponderous things comprising a cluster of blocks generally painted green and which no single man can possibly lift. This vast bunch of grapes was swayed up to the main top and firmly lashed to the lower masthead, the strongest point anywhere above a ship's deck. The end of the hawser-like rope winding through these intricacies was then conducted to the windlass, and the huge lower block of the tackles was swung over the whale. To this block, the great blubber hook, weighing some 100 pounds, was attached, and now suspended in stages over the side. Starbuck and Stubb, the mates, armed with their long spades, began cutting a hole in the body for the insertion of the hook just above the nearest of the two side fins. This done... A broad, semicircular line is cut round the hole. The hook is inserted, and the main body of the crew, striking up a wild chorus, now commence heaving in one dense crowd at the windlass, when instantly the entire ship careens over on her side. Every bolt in her starts like the nail heads of an old house in frosty weather. She trembles, quivers, and nods her frightened mastheads to the sky. More and more she leans over to the whale, while every gasping heave of the windlass is answered by a helping heave from the billows, till at last a swift startling snap is heard. With a great swash the ship rolls upwards and backwards from the whale, 
and the triumphant tackle rises into sight, dragging after it the disengaged, semicircular end of the first strip of blubber. Now as the blubber envelops the whale precisely as the rind does an orange, so is it stripped off from the body precisely as an orange is sometimes stripped by spiralizing it. For the strain, constantly kept up by the windlass, continuously keeps the whale rolling over and over in the water. And as the blubber in one strip uniformly peels off along the line called the scarf, simultaneously cut by the spades of Starbuck and Stubb, the mates, and just as fast as it is thus peeled off, and indeed by that very act itself, it is all the time being hoisted higher and higher aloft till its upper end grazes the main top. The men at the windlass then cease heaving, and for a moment or two, the prodigious blood-dripping mass sways to and fro, as if let down from the sky. And everyone present must take good heed to dodge it when it swings, else it may box his ears and pitch him headlong overboard. One of the attending harpooners now advances with a long, keen weapon called a boarding sword, and watching his chance, he dexterously slices out a considerable hole in the lower part of the swaying mass. Into this hole, the end of the second alternating great tackle is then hooked so as to retain a hold upon the blubber, in order to prepare for what follows. Whereupon, this accomplished swordsman, warning all hands to stand off, once more makes a scientific dash at the mass and with a few sidelong, desperate, lunging slicings, severs it completely in twain, so that while the short lower part is still fast, the long upper strip, called a blanket piece, swings clear and is all ready for lowering. The heavers forward now resume their song, and while the one tackle is peeling and hoisting a second strip from the whale, the other is slowly slackened away and down goes the first strip through the main hatchway right beneath, into an unfurnished parlor called the Blubber Room. Into this twilight apartment, sundry nimble hands keep coiling away the long blanket piece as if it were a great live mass of plated serpents. And thus the work proceeds, the two tackles hoisting and lowering simultaneously, both whale and windlass heaving, the heaver singing, the blubber room gentlemen coiling, the mates scarfing, the ship straining, and all hands swearing occasionally by way of assuaging the general friction. Chapter 68. The Blanket I have given no small attention to that not unvexed subject, the skin of the whale. I have had controversies about it with experienced whalemen afloat and learned naturalists ashore. My original opinion remains unchanged, but it is only an opinion. The question is, what and where is the skin of the whale? Already you know what is his blubber. That blubber is something of the consistence of firm, close-grained beef, but tougher, more elastic, and compact and ranges from 8 or 10 to 12 and 15 inches in thickness. Now, 
however preposterous it may at first seem to talk of any creature's skin as being of that sort of consistence and thickness, yet in point of fact these are no arguments against such a presumption, because you cannot raise any other dense enveloping layer from the whale's body but that same blubber. And the outermost enveloping layer of any animal, if reasonably dense, what can that be but the skin? True, from the unmarred dead body of the whale, you may scrape off with your hand an infinitely thin, transparent substance, somewhat resembling the thinnest shreds of icing glass, only it is almost as flexible and soft as satin. That is, previous to being dried, when it not only contracts and thickens, but becomes rather hard and brittle. I have several such dried bits, which I use for marks in my whale books. It is transparent, as I said before, and being laid upon the printed page, I have sometimes pleased myself with fancying it exerted a magnifying influence. At any rate, it is pleasant to read about whales through their own spectacles, as you may say. But what I am driving at here is this. That same infinitely thin icing glass substance, which, I admit, invests the entire body of the whale, is not so much to be regarded as the skin of the creature, as the skin of the skin, so to speak. For it were simply ridiculous to say that the proper skin of the tremendous whale is thinner and more tender than the skin of a newborn child. But no more of this. Assuming the blubber to be the skin of the whale, then, when this skin, as in the case of a very large sperm whale, will yield the bulk of 100 barrels of oil, and, when it is considered that, in quantity, or rather weight, that oil, in its expressed state, is only three-fourths and not the entire substance of the coat, some idea may hence be had of the enormousness of that animated mass, a mere part of whose mere integument yields such a lake of liquid as that. Reckoning ten barrels to the ton, you have ten tons for the net weight of only three-quarters of the stuff of the whale's skin. In life, the visible surface of the sperm whale is not the least among the many marvels he presents. Almost invariably, it is all over obliquely crossed and recrossed with numberless straight marks in thick array. Something like those in the finest Italian line engravings. But these marks do not seem to be impressed upon the icing glass substance above mentioned, but seem to be seen through it, as if they were engraved upon the body itself. Nor is this all. In some instances, to the quick, observant eye, those linear marks, as in a veritable engraving, but afford the ground for far other delineations. These are hieroglyphical. That is, if you call those mysterious ciphers on the walls of pyramids hieroglyphics, then that is the proper word to use in the present connection. By my retentive memory of the hieroglyphics upon one sperm whale in particular, I was much struck with a plate representing the old Indian characters chiseled on the famous hieroglyphic palisades on the banks of the upper Mississippi. Like those mystic rocks, too, 
the mystic marked whale remains undecipherable. This allusion to the Indian rocks reminds me of another thing. Besides all the other phenomena which the exterior of the sperm whale presents, he not seldom displays the back and more especially his flanks, effaced in great part of the regular linear appearance by reason of numerous rude scratches, altogether of an irregular random aspect. I should say that those New England rocks on the seacoast, which Agassiz imagines to bear the marks of violent scraping contact with the vast floating icebergs, I should say that those rocks must not a little resemble the sperm whale in this particular. It also seems to me that such scratches in the whale are probably made by hostile contact with other whales, for I have most remarked them in the large, full-grown bulls of the species. A word or two more concerning this matter of the skin or blubber of the whale. It has already been said that it is stripped from him in long pieces, called blanket pieces. Like most sea terms, this one is very happy and significant. For the whale is indeed wrapped up in his blubber as in a real blanket or counterpane. Or, still better, an Indian poncho slipped over his head and skirting his extremity. It is by reason of this cozy blanketing of his body that the whale is enabled to keep himself comfortable in all weathers, in all seas, times, and tides. What would become of a Greenland whale, say, in those shuddering icy seas of the north, if unsupplied with his cozy surtout? True, other fish are found exceedingly brisk in those hyperborean waters, but these, be it observed, are your cold-blooded, lungless fish, whose very bellies are refrigerators, creatures that warm themselves under the lee of an iceberg, as a traveler in winter would bask before an inn fire. Whereas, like man, the whale has lungs and warm blood. Freeze his blood, and he dies. How wonderful it is then, except after explanation, that this great monster, to whom corporal warmth is as indispensable as it is to man, how wonderful that he should be found at home, immersed to his lips for life in those arctic waters, where, when seamen fall overboard, they are sometimes found, months afterwards, perpendicularly frozen into the hearts of fields of ice, as a fly is found glued in amber. But more surprising it is to know, as has been proved by experiment, that the blood of a polar whale is warmer than that of a Borneo Negro in summer. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality, and the rare virtue of thick walls, and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. O man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou, too, remain warm among ice. Do thou, too, live in this world without being of it. Be cool at the equator. Keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter's, and like the great whale, retain, O man, in all seasons a temperature of thine own. But how easy and how hopeless to teach these fine things, 
of erections, how few are domed like St. Peter's, of creatures, how few vast as the whale. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time when the crew of the Pequod finishes cutting in the whale and the creatures of the sea take care of the rest.